You ever wonder how God really feels about you? I think we all wonder about that. Uh, Particularly those times, though, where you're at your worst. I think it's a mistake, and this would be another conversation we could have to think that, you know, on our best days, God must smile and say, oh, I really like them today. Uh, Especially if you're thinking on your worst days that he frowns and says, I don't really like those people today. I think we all wonder, how does God feel about us? What does he think? What are his purposes and his intentions toward us? And most of us, I think, kind of live in this, in this realm that if we do a pretty decent job, then we kind of feel like then God's going to be off our back and, you know, we'll, we'll be okay. But the reality is every single one of us hits those low spots and probably more frequently than we would ever admit. And I'm not just talking about a low spot where you're just, you know, just kind of feeling a little under the weather maybe a little discouraged. I'm talking about the low spots where you are like full of evil thoughts and deeds and words. And those are the particular moments where we need to know what God really thinks. And the Bible gives us God's perspective on our sinfulness, our law-breaking, our rebellion, a number of terms that we could use to describe it, but none are clearer than in the Gospels. And I say that because the Gospels, those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels that each of those men were inspired by the Holy Spirit to assemble for us, have so much content that actually shows us the life of Jesus, or gives us the words of Jesus. And I'm reminded of how at the end of his time with the disciples, just before he's betrayed and crucified and then rises again, he's having a conversation and is recorded in John 14 where his disciples are listening to him and one of his disciples, Philip, says, show us the Father and it is enough. And Jesus actually says, and seemingly somewhat amazed, have I been with you so long and still you say, show me the Father? And then he says this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, his whole point is that through the incarnation, through God the Son, the eternal Son of God, eternal second person of the Trinity, enters the world, takes upon him a real human body and existence like you and I know and live in every day. He came in order that he might show us the God who is a spirit, the God whom no man has seen at any time, as the scriptures teach us. So to read the words of Jesus, to see him in action, is to actually read the words of God himself, to see God in action. Now, I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke 15, because this is a particular passage that includes so much uh, teaching and instruction from Jesus, but he does it in the form of stories. And so while you're turning there, and if you're using one of the the Bibles that we have in the rack, uh, chair racks in, in front of you, you'll find this portion of Scripture on page 874, page 874. So we're in the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, this is Luke's gospel, chapter 15, and I want you to pay attention just as I read through this, follow along, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now that's, that's the whole context for why Jesus is, is going to tell three stories. You see, there's some cultural tension at this particular moment. Scribes and Pharisees, they're the highly taught, highly instructed religious 
leaders uh, in that whole community. When people wanted to know what the Old Testament Scriptures meant and said, they would go to the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the experts in religion in Israel in that day. And they're the ones who have a real problem with the fact that Jesus is receiving sinners and the tax collectors are included. And, and that's a group that's referred to through the Gospels uh, and, and they were actually the marginalized ones. The sinners, that's kind of obvious. If you're a committed Jewish person seeking to obey God's law, live according to the commandments, follow the traditions that you've been taught, I mean, it, it's crystal clear that you're not supposed to associate with sinners because they might pollute you and taint you spiritually. You could even disqualify yourself from, from being able to go down to the temple to worship on the Sabbath or even engaging with the others of God's people. So you didn't want to associate with sinners. Tax collectors were those who were viewed, uh, some from a nationalistic perspective, as having sold out their fellow Jewish citizens to the Roman government, but also many of them, honestly, were dishonest. How's that? Honestly, were dishonest. I'm speaking honestly. So, you know, who wants to hang out with criminals? Well, Jesus does. And it's not because he's just anti-establishment. You know, he's just not looking to poke the larger community in the eye and, and just kind of be his own man. No, he's, he's actually got a real purpose and mission. Because in receiving these tax collectors and sinners to himself and even eating with them, sharing table fellowship, I mean, that's a really significant social interaction. He's actually on mission to bring them back, and that's what we're going to see. But he's also going to make a point that these Pharisees and scribes have a heart attitude that needs to be adjusted. Now, there are three stories that Jesus tells, and all of them have to do with lost things. The first is a story about a lost sheep, and the sheep owner leaves 99 sheep to go find the one who's lost. And when he finds him, Jesus uses some terms uh, repetitively through this. The, the owner of those sheep rejoices. He celebrates. The second story is of a woman who's lost a coin. And it's, it's probably part of her dowry or her inheritance. So it's not just like any old coin, but it's a significant part of of her heritage, as well as hope for her future. When she finds it, she too throws a party and celebrates. She rejoices. And the third story is the one that I want us to look at in the time we have this morning. It's the, it's the story or the parable of a lost son. And Jesus is telling these stories to answer the grumbling of these religious power brokers in the community who are not happy that he's hanging out with the people he's hanging out with. His point to them will actually be that they ought to see the bigger picture of what is taking place and not only stop their grumbling, that would be the repentance side of it, but they should actually begin rejoicing that God himself has come down to receive sinners. But let's look closer at the story of the lost son now. So verse 11, I'm just going to read through this and make a few comments as we go, uh, but let's look first of all at this younger son that we're going to be introduced to. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, that is, between the two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now let's pause there for just a moment. 
because there are a couple of things that immediately become apparent. This younger son seeks his independence, verse 12, and he asks his father to give him his share, which in Jewish tradition, he's the second-born son, so he would only receive about a third of the father's total net worth or estate. The older son would receive two-thirds as the firstborn. That was a position in place of honor and responsibility. And so when he says, give me a share of the property, we also need to recognize that because this is an agricultural community, he's actually asking for a third of the family livelihood. Some of you grew up on farms or maybe in you know, a, a working class setting where you know, dad got up and, and maybe had his own business going every day and mom was right there helping him and together the family just struggled and, and they worked hard through the years to accumulate the, the, the equipment that the family business needed and some of the resources behind the scenes and, and now suddenly a third of that walks out of the house with the son. This is an extraordinary scenario that Jesus is setting up. So it's not just a son who, you know, turns 18 and says, I'm going to live on my own. But it's a son who is actually seeking independence in a way that dishonors his father. Verse 13, he gathered all he had. And some suggest to us that it actually means he took all of that property, liquidated it, turned it into cash. And if that's true, imagine how the father felt to watch things that he had worked hard to accumulate. Maybe there's equipment. Maybe there are even things that have been passed down from generation to generation. I mean, we just have no way of knowing. But as, as the hearers of the story in that particular context listen to Jesus put these points forward, forward, I'm sure all of them are aghast, saying this is not a good scenario. And look what he does with it. Verse 13. He took a journey into a far con country, squandered his property in reckless living. There's a picture of him in, in one sense of just taking those assets that he had not been the one to work hard to accumulate through the years and in a sense just scattering them to the wind. That's the idea of squandering in reckless living. Look at what happens. Verse 14, we read it. When he had spent everything, or we came to this, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Well, here's the third thing. He's been seeking his independence, and he's decided to live recklessly. But do you know something? When we live recklessly, there are always consequences, aren't there? And this son begins to experience the hard consequences of his sin. Now, there are circumstances that are beyond his control, and, and the famine is not something that he had power to generate on, a, on his own any more than he has power to, to turn that thing around. Famine is just something that ultimately is under God's control, isn't it? And I'm aware of the fact that when Jesus says a severe famine came to be, that it's a reminder to all of us there are forces in the world that are beyond our control. But you know, they are always under God's control. And the result of this is he began to be in need. That is, he's experiencing a financial deficit. Suddenly, he doesn't have the resources that he needs just to live, let alone to party with that immoral crowd that he's chosen to associate with. A second thing here is there's a, there's a clear spiritual downfall. When, this, when the story continues to unfold and Jesus says 
that he went, verse 15, and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs for a Jewish man. This is a low point beyond which it might be impossible to go. If you know anything about the Old Testament uh, covenant and the way God had instructed Israel to live their lives through the instruction of Moses, part of that is God established clean animals and unclean animals. And there are long lists of them uh, that you can find in some of those first five books of the Bible. But one thing, one kind of animal that was clearly off limits, and it's kind of the poster animal, if I can put it, for unclean animals when you, when you think of the Jewish people, it's the pig. I know that's hard for some of you because you love bacon, as I do. You think, I, I can never be a committed Jewish you know, uh, follower. Maybe. That's another conversation, isn't it? But I hear this Jewish son is in so much trouble, the only job he can find is feeding pigs. It's a testimony to the fact of how far he has fallen spiritually. And this is even more offensive to Jews than we can imagine. So here he is, running out of money. He's clearly defiled himself by taking this job. But if we continue reading in verse 16, note how deep his hunger becomes. I mean, it's to the point where it's actually a physical danger to him. He's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And there's some who suspect that he would have eaten those very pods if he had the chance, but maybe his, uh, the, the man who hired him is giving such close supervision that he, he won't allow him to. But it's, we don't know the particular details, but it seems that he is starving to death. And he says in verse 17, I perish here with hunger. And he's not exaggerating. So financially, he's ruined. Spiritually, he's ruined. Physically, he is about to be ruined. And then as Jesus continues to unfold this story for us, he says, verse 17, when he came to himself. And you know, this is the point that sin often takes us, the lowest points in life. And sometimes we've been sinned against, and that can certainly take you to a low point. But if all of us will be honest at this moment, we have to admit that we have sinned in ways that have brought us low. And some of you this morning, if you would be honest before God, you don't even, it's not even that you need to tell me as one of the pastors here or somebody else in this particular place, but if you were honest before God, you would have to say, you know, my sin has had some devastating consequences and I've experienced low points, or maybe you're even at a low point because you've made choices to walk away from God, to walk away from people who genuinely want to help you. And you've thought to yourself, if I can live independently and if I can run my own operation and choose my own friends and do my own things, then I'll be fulfilled. But that's a lie from the devil himself. From the beginning, he's been telling us, God hasn't been truthful with you when he says, don't eat the forbidden fruit. Or God's withholding information from you because he knows, as, he, as the devil said to Adam and Eve uh, Back in Genesis, he knows that the day you eat this, you're actually going to be like him. 
It appeals to that pride in you that says, I actually want to be my own God. It's a path to destruction. Or the third thing the devil does is to exaggerate the consequences of sin. Just like he said to Adam and Eve, if you eat it, you will not die. And you know, it's true they didn't die that moment they ate it. But it began to work death in them. And you read all those genealogies in the Old Testaments and try to stay awake while you're reading them. But you know, especially in that early part of Genesis, what's the one phrase that's repeated over and over? They lived, some of them, 960 years, but then the phrase comes, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died, because that's the consequence of sin. And this son is about to experience that. And I wonder if you're in a really bad spot right now, in part because you've chosen to ignore God and act as if He's not your loving authority, and you've chosen to live life your own way. You're in a world of hurt as this lost son was because of your choices. But praise God, verse 17, he came to himself. That's just another way of saying he, he came to his senses. And look at what he says. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. These are some of the true marks of repentance in that little dialogue, the conversation he's having with his own soul at this particular moment. He acknowledges two points of offense. And the first is heaven. That, that is a, a metaphorical way of just referring to God. God, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against my dad. The marks of repentance are always seen in that honest and humble acknowledgement of the ones we've offended. And there's nothing in this little script that he is formulating at this point that that points a finger somewhere else saying, well, then there was the so-and-so. And and you know what? He probably had run into some bad people who had taken advantage of him. Maybe there were those who stole directly from him. There were probably all kinds of additional uh, uh, scenarios that he could offer as to the reason why he's in this really bad predicament. But at this moment, he owns his responsibility and says, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my dad. And it's, it's fascinating to me that he is already thinking along the lines of, I am not even worthy to be called your son. That's how deep my sin against my father and my household is. That's how disgraceful my behavior has been. We don't often see our sin as being that bad, do we? As a matter of fact, sometimes we'll confess it and own it, but, but almost foist responsibility on the, the other party that's offended, whether it be an individual or maybe a group of people, and say, hey, okay, I've done my part. Now, are you, are you going to reciprocate here? As if they're obligated to show mercy. As if they're obligated to show grace. Do you remember the prayer of David? After the prophet Nathan confronted him for having stolen another man's wife, murdering that man, Uriah, the wife is Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her. And when Nathan confronts him, God finally breaks his heart wide open. And David says in in prayer of confession to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
He's not acting as if there was no sin against Uriah or Bathsheba or even the people in his kingdom who would suffer because of his sin. He's just so captured with this overwhelming thought that his sin is first and foremost against the God who created him and gave him life. Do you see your sin in that way? Do you have any sense this morning that to rebel in life, to reject God, to live your life as if he's not there is actually a sin in and of itself? From the son's perspective, it would be a mercy for his father just to hire him on as a common household servant. And you know, the truth for us as sinful people is that we actually have no rights to claim anything from God. Well, look at verse 20. He returns to the Father. And the story itself is turning, isn't it? We read these beautiful words at the beginning of verse 20. He arose and came to the Father. Now pause right there. He's got his speech prepared, doesn't he? He's been brought low. I'm sure his stomach is growling the closer he gets to home, just thinking, oh, if he would just hire me. I know he he takes care of his servants. Maybe I'll have a meal by sundown. But as Jesus tells this story, look at the next word, but... And that marks a little point of contrast. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Pause right there, and let's begin to think, what what was that son hoping for and expecting? Where is the story going to go? Well, let's continue reading, because now the, the Lord Jesus brings the father and sets him front and center for us. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, the scriptures say, and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, what is this? This is a stunning turn. Let me just suggest to you, first of all, that the father has been looking for his son for a long time with longing expectation. I think you read that when, in, in the lines that Jesus positions for us when he was still a long way off. Unless your eye is continually cast to the horizon cast to that long way off, you're not going to see a lost son who is coming near. I think it tells us very clearly that this father, probably for many days, has been looking over the same horizon he watched his son go so many days before, hoping and praying that he would return. The second thing that strikes me me is that the father welcomes his lost son with a startling compassion. Now, dads, When your children have blown it and defied you, whether they're little ones or big ones, I mean, what kind of emotions does that typically stir in you? Am I the only dad who feels anger? I don't think so. Uh, Frustration? Yep. We could probably build a fairly lengthy list of emotions that we feel, especially when those kids do stuff that we've said multiple times, don't do that. How many times have I told you, you know, put your clothes away, put the tool away, put the car away, you know, whatever it is, and you just feel this like 
boiling anger. I'm talking hypothetically, Haley. Just talked a lot of dads out here. That's what they tell me they feel. We would expect the dad to maybe stand on the porch with his arms folded, wouldn't we? Like, and maybe even, you know, he doesn't have to be furious and anger, angry. Maybe just one of those, told you it wouldn't go well. Now what are you going to do? I mean, we can think of all kinds of scripts that could be written for this dad. But the first thing that Jesus says is he felt compassion. And that's a word for pity. It's a deep visceral yearning within his soul. Here's the son who dishonored the father grievously, who squandered the precious resources the father had accumulated so faithfully through the years. Here's the son who profaned the family name as he binged his lust with prostitutes, because the older brother's going to note that in a moment, and took work from a Gentile pig farmer. Maybe the father knows some of these details. Maybe he knows all the details, but he's full of compassion, and then that compassion moves him off of the porch, as it were, and he runs, as Jesus says, embraces him, and kisses him. Picture that. Some of you can because as parents you say, man, I've experienced that or I'm praying for it still. And as one author writes, there's no qualified acceptance or cautious reception of the son, but rather a wholehearted acceptance and an uninhibited expression of delight in the return of the son. Once he recognizes the figure in the distance as his son, the father cares not a whit about the fitting dignity of his years and station. Some have said, you know, old dignified fathers don't run. Well, this one does. And it's a beautiful picture, not just of a Jewish father, it's actually a beautiful picture of the God of heaven and how his heart explodes with compassion, how he moves toward those lost ones who begin to return to him and say, God, I need help. God, I've rebelled. God, would you just give me a little corner as a servant in your household? And he's there with his arms open wide because his heart overflows with pity. And the son, as we continue reading, begins to deliver his humble confession and request. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but that's where it stops. And maybe the father interrupts him. is like, say no more. Doesn't even let him finish the speech, but he doesn't get the rest of it out. He doesn't even get to say, could you hire me as one of your common servants? That's as far as he gets, because at this point, the father's heart is now issuing these remarkable directives. Look at verse 22. He says to other servants, obviously standing around him, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. The father immediately begins to restore his lost son to the family with an undeserved honor. And the three particular uh, needs that the son, that I think are representative of the most basic needs of life, um, come to the forefront. The son never anticipated that his father would clothe him with the finest robe out of his own closet. And I was thinking yesterday... 
as I was looking over this particular verse, you think about where those hands of the Son have been. They're filthy not only from the days of defiling labor among the swine of a Gentile employer, they're also filthy spiritually from the nights of immoral living in the far country. And I'm filling in some blanks here, but I think it's at least reasonable to assume that before he puts the ring on that hand, he's bathed, cleansed. And it's not just a ring, it's out of the Father's treasure. And those feet that carried him off of the family farm in rebellion many days prior to that, which are now barren, which is another sign of his absolute poverty and destitution. The father says, give him some sandals. He came back with a hope that his father might show him the kindness and mercy of a place among the field workers, but he's been restored to the household as a son. He came back hoping that he might be able to earn his keep just so he could have enough to eat on a daily basis and a a place to sleep out of the elements, but his father restores him to a feast table. And when we read of the, the directive to kill the fattened calf and put on a big party, it is overwhelming. You who wonder how God feels about you and your sin... Wonder if he would receive you if you came to him because you look at your past and say, I I can't even think about all that I've done, all that I'm guilty of, things I've said, things I've even thought. I I couldn't even bear to face God. Do you see God the Father standing before you with heart full of pity and compassion, arms extended wide, ready to leap off of the porch, as it were, and meet you before you can even get to him? The generosity and grace which God the Father has prepared to lavish on you as he restores you from your broken, fallen position is far more than you could ever imagine or hope for. And the blessings that he has treasured up in Jesus are rich and they are abundant and they are eternal. And and you fear you may have sinned your way out of the compassion or pity or blessing of God. And Jesus tells this story to correct the grumbling of scribes and Pharisees who were supposedly expert in religion and also to encourage the very tax collectors and sinners that he's been eating with saying, the God that you need to return to loves you more than you can imagine, would receive you eagerly, would celebrate your homecoming. And that kind of mercy, beloved, compels us too to come to our senses I'm confident that God is speaking to some of you right now, essentially saying, will you come to your senses as the lost son did? Will you see me and my great love for you and my great mercy and compassion, my desire to restore you to my household, my desire to bless you, to forgive you, to cleanse you? Will you come to me? And so a great celebration ensues, and the father celebrates his lost son's return. And we read verses 23 and 24, but it climaxes in verse 24 as he rejoices, my son who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's God's delight in restoring broken, sinful people. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you? 
Who could? We sang earlier, how high, how wide is his mercy? How deep is his love? Deeper than you can imagine. Higher than you could ever dream. Wider than you could ever possibly want it to be. What a father. There's a second son, and I think it is important for us to very, very briefly take a look at him. And in verses 25 and following, we read of the older son. He was in the field, Jesus says, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has recovered or received him, received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. And, and in the text he uses terminology, served you like a slave. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me, and I'm inserting these words to help us understand, so much as a young goat. Because let's be honest, in comparison to the fattened calf, I mean, that's prime rib, you know, compared to, I don't know, what would it be? What would be a good comparison, Kristen? Well, yeah, you just said goat, but I mean, goat's not all bad. Hot dogs, maybe? In and out? Yeah, there you go, thanks. Yeah, that'd be decent. I could enjoy In-N-Out, but if you said prime rib, In-N-Out, no-brainer. You've never gave me so much as a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours, did you catch that? Not my brother. This son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And you know, this is just the overflow, actually, of self-righteousness. He actually despises not only his brother, but he despises his father's joy at this moment and the celebration that's ensuing. And it may be difficult for Westerners like us to comprehend the nature of the younger son's offense. So in one sense, you can make a good case to say that the older brother has every reason to be deeply offended by what his younger brother has done. But that's part of the astonishing contrast that Jesus is trying to draw out and, and put on display, that in their in their culture, it makes really good sense that this son would never be brought back into the household, that he'd never be restored in relationship to his father, that he would never have an expectation that his older brother would receive him. But in God's economy of grace, those are the very kinds of things that unfold. And it doesn't seem fair to us in one respect. But if you think about grace itself, it's not fair. It's not fair. Fair is it that Jesus was placed on a cross and punished for sins that he never committed. That's not fair. It's not fair that God's wrath was poured out on him, the sinless one, in order that sinners like us might be converted. That's not fair. It's not fair that his lifeless body was placed into a tomb prepared for the decomposition process. It's not fair that Jesus was buried it's not fair that God would gift us the perfect righteousness of Jesus when he took our sin. That's not fair. It's not fair that he would wipe clean the record of our sin because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's not fair. It's not fair that he would give us the gift of eternal life when we actually earn death by our sin. That's not fair. 
But praise God, it's not fair because it's all grace. So on the one hand, the, the son could make a case, but he's operating in, in an economy of law and works, and he's not operating in God's economy of grace. And sadly, he refuses to go in. He misses the celebration. And this is Jesus' point to those scribes and Pharisees. You need to come inside and celebrate with me. You need to sit at the same table as I welcome sinners as they are reconciled to the God who created them through the gospel. You need to celebrate with us as we have table fellowship with tax collectors who previously have been cheating people like you, but now as they repent, and Zacchaeus would have been an example of that, if you think of another gospel story, the, 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 the power of the gospel to change people from the inside out and make them into new creatures creates all kinds of opportunities for celebration, and that's the point that Jesus is making. And amazingly, look at verses 31 and 32 with me. The father is unmoved. He actually maintains a deep affection for this son as well. Even though he's angry, he's self-righteous, he refuses to come to the party. And the father says to him, son, and right there he actually uses a term of, of fatherly affection. It sometimes is used with little children. It'd be like some of you dads who have little ones. You say, hey, come here, little one. And you just say it with such tenderness. Because there's no, there's no relationship quite like a father with a, a child like this. So it could have reference to a person of any age, but it's, the father is saying, my dear son. And then he bego- begins to remind him that the, the terms of the estate settlement haven't changed. All that is mine is yours. You are always with me. I still love you. I'm not changing anything, even though your brothers come home. But he goes on to say, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It was appropriate. And that's the final point to the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is saying, Stop your grumbling. As you think through the story, I wonder which son you most closely relate to or resemble. Some of you would say, I'm the younger son. As a matter of fact, I haven't even come home yet. But have you come to your senses? Do you see that your Father in heaven is the only one who could actually rescue you right now? You can keep spending your resources, but you're eventually going to be just as bankrupt as this lost son. Sin always takes you down. But the Heavenly Father always lifts up and restores. Will you come to Him? Will you come to Him today? Maybe you're the older brother. Maybe you've been working hard just to keep the Heavenly Father happy. And you're, you, you take His word seriously and you obey the commands, but you've never really understood how grace is ultimately what makes the difference in your soul. It actually kind of ticks you off that people who could live so wickedly and corruptly could be received even into a church like this, that there could be a celebration over uh, a sinner who repents and puts his faith in Jesus Christ and decides he's going to go forward. It's like, are there no consequences for that person? Well, you know, when God begins to work with his grace, it transforms us from the inside out, and he has grace for self-righteous people, 
in the same way that he has grace for sinful people. So while it may be hard for you to believe that God the Father would have such compassion for the broken people of the world, you actually need to see yourself as being just as broken, just in a different way. Shared joy is what runs through these three parables. It's the common theme that the Lord sets before us this day, and it, it encourages us because some of us struggle. God, what do you think of me as a sinner? And he's telling us, and he's inviting us into the celebration.